from the creators of Relevant Magazine, this is The Relevant Podcast. It is Friday, January 31st. The year is 2020. You're listening to The Relevant Podcast. My name is Tyler Huckabee. I'm coming at you from Nashville, Tennessee. Meanwhile, down there in Orlando, Florida, making sure we don't go directly into a ditch out of the gates. It's our friend, our illustrious producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. And up in Loveland, Virginia, uh, doing his best to, to take over the wheel and steer us off the train instantly into the ditch. It's our friend, Jesse Gary. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> rumble, rumble ramps were invented for me. They, I, I drive on them for the fun of the, it, the, just the, for the, the, the wake-up call. <laughs> yep, I love them. I love them. And scare everyone us, in the car harmlessly. Joining us yeah. for the first time, making her relevant podcast debut today. So pressure's on. Coming at us from Orange County. <laughs> it is our friend, the 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 author, the musical theater geek, and blogger, Kristen Howerton, is joining us. Hi, Kristen. How are you guys doing? Oh man, we're doing great right now that you're here, Kristen. Yeah. We we, uh, we we were just asking. We were, we were talking just a little bit before I started recording here, and uh, and you mentioned that you have listened to a couple episodes of the podcast before, and. Uh, Right out of the gates, I want to get your honest review. Uh, <laughs> how are we doing? What, what do you think? Give us, wow, give us, give us a, a lot of temperature. A temperature check. It is a lot of pressure. Am yeah. I doing a performance review right now? <laughs> well, yes, we need, we a, need an objective outside observer to come in. We, we really need somebody just to set us straight. Say and, the hard and, and here's the thing, Chris. I will, I will preface it with this. I take things very, very personally. Oh, okay. So. Great. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, um, I am a licensed therapist, so if I need to do some grief counseling after I share my oh, opinion. Man. Oh, man. I forgot. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I, I will say this. Then. I mean, I'm sure you've both been told this before, but you guys have like real DJ voices, like legit radio voices. Really? Never you been, know that. Never been you told know. that before. This is a first I, time. I, I, I promise you. I promise you. Because every time I listen back, I'm like, I am very nasally and very annoying. I don't know how people yeah. in my life yeah. even deal at all. Like, I appreciate that. That is a, a fine compliment. I appreciate that, Kristen. Well, I, I think everyone hates their voice. I hate my voice when I listen to my podcast. I'm like, oh my uh-huh. gosh, I'm so annoying. I think everyone does, yeah. right? No, yeah. you sound like a pro. You like, really do. I, 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 yeah, yeah I, I feel like you're making Tyler and I look very amateurish right now. And like I said, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I take like the these things on. very personally. We have, a, we have a therapist on, and I do kind of feel like if you weren't listening to the actual content of, uh, and you just heard me and Jesse's voices, sometimes we'd kind of just be like another Joe Rogan, Bernie Bro <laughs> type, like just one of the like that, just talking about combat sports and libertarian values. So I, no, I, I, you guys, I think you are a little. Do you know Kevin and Bean? That's a, that might be an LA reference, but there are two DJs out here that are very popular, and you guys remind. You know, it's like you're just bantering about whatever's happening in the day. I guess that's well, true. And, and they, but people, but the thing is, people listen and they're like, you know, they're actually Jesse and Tyler are actually profoundly dumber than <laughs> either Joe Rogan or this or this Bean character in Southern California. You know, okay, this is, okay. I'm going to be serious now. I don't okay. think that's true. Okay. Okay. I think you guys are often very funny and very, you know, kind of breezy. But you guys get into some in depth stuff. There is a lot more substance that I than I think one might mm. see on the surface. Oh, well, I oh, appreciate that's that. A, that's very, very affirming. That's a very gracious I, thing to say. 
That's the nicest thing anyone has said to me in a very long time, <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> well, Kristen, we, we appreciate you making the time because you're a very you're very busy. You have the uh, a very popular blog, Rage Against the Minivan. You have your own podcast, Selfie, right? Yes. And and also uh, you, you have a book and just a, a prolific social media presence. You know, we we really appreciate, like you said, you making the time to to be a part of the madness with us for for uh, a little bit here. Well, it's fun. I'm excited. Can you uh, can you talk about the book? I know the book is is coming out. Uh, well, it's June, right? Coming out in June. Yeah. Are you done? Is it is it ready to go? I'm done. I'm really okay. happy to be done. It was a bit of a slog writing a book. Um, I'm not. I, I was a slow writer, so it's done. Um, it's called Rage Against the Minivan, and it's a memoir about parenting. But as I do. On every social platform, I sort of rabbit trail on different topics in the book as well. So there's, you know, there's a chapter on introversion and there's a chapter on Christian code speak and (laughs) growing up, you know, in the church where, you know, maybe not everybody always says what they mean or we invoke like, well, God Mm -hmm. told me as a way to trump what, you know, Mm. someone else thinks. Um, I talk about um, purity culture faith. I mean, I'm all over the place in the book. I'm all over the place in life. And the book is a, an extension of that. I, I, I love the, I love the concept too, because in the subtitles, like without perfection, yeah. like, you know, kind of releasing people from this burden of, we got to do things a certain way. It's got to be perfect. And I guess for people, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about kind of your, your background and why you wanted to write a, a book that would kind of free people from that, because that really is something that I feel like it, for people that grew up in Christian culture and especially with some of the kind of things you were talking about with like, whether it be like purity culture or or this like idea that whatever quote unquote God's will is for my life. If I'm outside of that, I really mess things up. Why did you want to write something that would kind of maybe free people from that, whether they're parents or just kind of Christians that kind of lived under that weight for a while? Well, I mean, I'm going to be totally honest here. I, I don't even know that I set out to write that book to help people. It was more sharing my own struggle. Like I'm a very Mm -hmm. imperfect mom, but I'm also a person who really does struggle daily. And still, it's not like I, you know, I've written the book because I'm now in a place of like totally getting it. Like I, I am still very much a person who struggles with perfectionism and struggles with wanting, wanting everyone to think that I've got it together, that I'm a good person, that I'm a good Christian. Like all of that stuff that I was raised with is still very much sort of tugging at my heels. But, you know, I, I wanted to write a book that helped moms let themselves off the hook because I think we Mm. deal with a lot of pressure these days. Um, And I'll, I'll say this too. I'm, I started out as a mommy blogger. I've been blogging for a long time. Um, And I do think that some of the blogging, Pinterest, Instagram, some of the influencers in that space and maybe even myself included, have created this sort of reality that's impossible to live up to, right? So, you're supposed to like probably have a job, um, but but it should probably be a creative job and, you know, probably like cook super healthy meals. And then when your kid has a birthday party, it should be like perfectly Pinterest curated. And there's just, Mm. there's a lot of pressure to, to do all this external stuff for kids. When in reality, like what do kids need at the end of the day? I mean, we, we have to feed them. We do have to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and we need to love them and be attentive to them, but all the rest is probably, 
we could probably let go of a lot. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, that I've kind of been. I'm I'm a non-parent, uh, and I'm also not a so so that I, I speak as this into this as an observer. But as I and, get and, and Kristen, real quick for for context, I have two children. Tyler uh, is a non-parent, and, and Chandler is a plant parent. He has uh, <laughs> quite a few house plants, and he's named them. Okay. He's named them, and has well, a very unhealthy. He has a very unhealthy. It's a very unhealthy relationship that he with has plants. with plants. It's 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 very disturbing. It's and, hard to tell uh, who's raising who sometimes in that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> but uh, but as as I I'm I'm uh, I'm 35 years old. And I, as I've kind of gotten older, I've realized looking back how, in retrospect, how young my parents were. I'm the oldest. And in the idea, like, because in your mind, your parents are always your parents and you can never really know them super well. But it, looking back on it, I was like, well, they were doing not just the best they could, but but in many ways, the best they could was was extremely amateur. Um, but it worked out, you know, this was pre Pinterest. This was pre Instagram. This was, uh, this was, uh, this was Iowa in the eighties and, uh, and learning and recognizing just how much every parent, especially new parent is winging it is kind of totally shocking and terrifying in some ways, but also very reassuring because society has continued on unabated just the same way for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And we've all been more or less all right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. It's funny. I grew up in the eighties in Missouri and you know, I, I feel like our parents were like way more slack than the expectations (laughs) now. Right. I mean, they were just kind of, my childhood was really like go outside and then come back when the streetlights come on. Like there was not as much hovering. My mother never in a million years felt the need to like make my birthday party be like ombre themed or, you know, something Mm. (laughs) Um, and then take photos of it and show all of her friends. Like it was just way less intense, way less showy. I mean, it was like, you know, maybe, maybe somewhat neglectful. (laughs) <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but actually, I talk about in a fun way. That, in a fun way. Yeah. No, there's. I think that there is a healthy, like, a healthy level of neglect. Not neglect. I mean, that's not the right word. But you know, when we let kids kind of figure out their own path, when they, when we let them be bored, when we're not cruise directors, um, I actually think that kids, kids become more resourceful. They become more creative. You know, when we say like, "Hey, go, go outside." And find a stick to make something with. You know, I think that that yeah. makes kids more interesting and creative and resilient. Now, when, you know, you kind of recognized the, like, uh, I, you know, kind of like the toll that this kind of perfectionism culture that's bred everything from, you know, the church to technology and Pinterest culture, because I think we've all been there too, where you go to like a kid's birthday party and it's like, I feel like I'm at like a themed showroom <laughs> at like a Chip and Joe display and I can yeah. never live up to this and yes. I feel terrible about myself. You know, like when you started to kind of recognize that and take steps to kind of, uh, not let that take the toll on you that maybe you recognized it, it it was what what were the results kind of emotionally and spiritually and just how it allowed you to enjoy quality time with your kids more yeah absolutely and i want to say this caveat also from the beginning if if there's people listening and they are the parents or the people who you know put together elaborate cheese trays or you know the, the people <laughs> who make those 
at big parties. If that is your thing, that's amazing. I think what I kind of had to come to is that not everything can be your thing, right? So Mm. if I'm going to be a working mom, and then I'm also going to volunteer in the theater department at my kid's school, then maybe I have to let go of a couple other things. And so it's not really so much about like, you know, don't do this, but do this. It's more like, okay, figure out the, you know, maybe a couple areas where you're going to like, kill it as a parent, right? Like, Mm. you know, what are the areas that you're like, I'm good at this and I care about this. I mean, for me, it's music. Like I want all my kids to know how to play an instrument. And that's something I care about. Sports, eh, I'm sorry, not super important. Um, I don't need my kids to like, you know, be an all-star and, you know, we're not striving for scholarships. We're just striving for like maybe plan a school team. I don't care. Um, So I think, you know, a part of it is just figuring out like, what the areas that you're going to lean into and then what the areas are where you're going to just let yourself off the hook. And Mm. so that was a big part of it for me is just like, okay, I cannot be all things all the time. I cannot be the perfect homemaker, the perfect party planner, the perfect volunteer at school and the perfect, you know, everything all at once. I have to pick and choose. Yeah. That's such great advice. I mean, People who know me, and by I mean people who know me, my neighbors. No, I'm not a yard guy. My yard's going to look terrible. And I have other strengths and other values, and I'm done losing sleep over this. Yeah. Okay? And and the notices from the Neighborhood Association, they're not helping either. And no. so Back off. They can just for, back off. <laughs> exactly. The more you ask, the less I'm going to move. Yeah. But yeah. One of the the things, higher that grass will grow. Yeah. One of the things I talk about sort of giving up in the book is like, I am the napkin underdog. So whenever they send out at, at school, they'll send out like the sign up sheets for like the class parties and it'll be like, you know, home baked goods or cupcakes. And I'm like, I'll take napkins. I'll do napkins. <laughs> <laughs> I will order them, them on Amazon Prime. I won't even leave my house. I will put them in my kid's backpack. I am always on napkins. That is one way I've let myself off the hook. That was when I was a kid, that was how you knew you were at like the rich kids party is when instead of eating the the cake or the pizza off of a napkin, they had like the themed paper, like like the Spider-Man, <laughs> right. the, the Spider-Man plates or, or whatever, or I like, would frozen or whatever it'd be. Th- that was like the haves and the have nots. It was a different totally. In my my growing up, paper towels were used for everything, including oh, plates yes. and dishware. Like you could, you could, I, I could dry a off out of the shower with a paper towel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was the bare grills of paper towels yes. growing up. You know. I mean, I still do that. I'm still a paper towel mom. And maybe if we yeah. have like a leftover, like so we like had a frozen party and then we had we used frozen napkins for like a year after that they were left over. Like here's yeah. your dinner with a frozen napkin. <laughs> here, here, here's my beef real quick with those birthday party napkins uh, for kids parties because I feel you know I've I've had my own kids party I've been to a bunch of kids parties they are the least absorbent fabric on earth oh, like absurd. literally I'm just smearing like the frosting all over yeah. my face that that Elsa blue on that napkin is soaking up none of the grape juice I'm just smearing <laughs> it into the carpet they're terrible products you I, know? Yeah, I, mean, I think you're making a really good case for paper towels right now I know me too <laughs> Me too. Which brings you to our today's sponsor, Bounty Paper Towels. 
That'll do it for paper towel talk. That would be amazing. I, I wish they were a sponsor right now. <laughs> I'll talk to the sales team. Yeah. We do need to take a break to talk about a sponsor real fast. But uh, later on in the show, we're going to be joined uh, by John Eldridge. Oh, it's going to be a spicy one. John Eldridge is here. Jesse talked to him about his new book, Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. And when we come back from this break, we're going to do the hot list. You're listening to Your Girlfriend by Blossoms. At the beginning of the podcast, you heard It Just Doesn't Happen by Destroyer. Refer to so many things. Um, All right, so it's time for our weekly look back at the top five stories at the intersection of faith and culture that we came across this week. It's time for... It's the hot list, the hot list. Okay, number five this week, a new Netflix true crime documentary looks at the toll of the opioid crisis. The first true crime segment we're going to talk about on this podcast today. We'll tell you what the other one is going to be a little bit later. Uh, So this new documentary, this does look interesting. The film tells the story of one man who lost his son to a drug-related shooting in New Orleans. Police kind of shrugged about it, but Dan Schneider launched his own amateur investigation that ended up uncovering the genesis of the opioid crisis years before it would land on the radar of the nation. In doing so, he also uncovered the powerful people, institutions, and corporations that were either complicit or actively involved in the irresponsible push to get opioids into the hands of at-risk individuals while ignoring the risks. Here is a clip of the trailer for The Pharmacist. At first, my mission was to get justice for my son. But then I started noticing in the drugstore, a lot of kids around my son's age coming in with high-powered opiate prescriptions for OxyContin. Word on the street was, it's just heroin in a pill. There was a certain doctor using her license to virtually decimate my community. I couldn't look the other way. There was a rumor that there was a pharmacist making a lot of noise, and that's not good for business. He had questions all the time. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? There were boxes and boxes of materials. All right, Dan, we're not being recorded again, are we? No. The DA and FBI was neither incompetent or in cahoots. I just knew that people were making money. If there ever was a smoking gun, that was it. This this, the trailer. This movie comes out uh, next week on February fifth. The thing that like kind of is is what I found the most appealing about this is it does what I feel like a lot of good true crime does, which is looks at a problem, looks at injustice, looks at kind of the sources of an issue without being exploitive. Like this isn't about some kind of random gruesome murder. This is uh, about a story that is really a microcosm for a larger crisis and, and, and hopefully will shed some kind of additional understanding about the opioid crisis in America. Yeah, I... <clears throat> I think there's kind of three or maybe more, but I can sort Americans into three groups about the, there's the people who've has been directly affected by the opioid crisis are very intimately aware with the way that it's, that it's ravaged their families and friendships and communities. 
there's people who are pretty oblivious to it, who, who don't uh, really know that it's happening in, in different parts of America. And then there's a, a huge, probably the majority of us, and I put myself in this group in the middle, who are aware of it. Like, I've read these news stories. I've, I've done some reporting on it. But it's still such a uh, removed thing from my personal experience, even though I know it's happening here in Tennessee. Yeah. I, I know that the, that the markets here in rural Tennessee have been flooded by oxy. Uh, it still just feels like kind of a, one of those stories you read about in the news and you're like, oh, that's terrible, but yeah. you don't know how to get involved on a personal level. And I do think stories like this help change that. Yeah. Kristen, are you a fan of the true crime genre that sort of made a comeback of late? Well, you know, you made a really good point when you were describing the show and like that this one seems less exploitive and more looking at like the injustice. I mean, I, I do like a lot of true crime stories, but the, I do find that some of them really are more just about like, ooh, let's like listen to something that's super weird, right? Yeah. Versus, yeah. like I've been watching um, the Aaron Hernandez story. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. How is yeah. that? You know, it, well, it's it's really good. And it's, again, it's fascinating and you're watching it and like there's all these twists and turns, but they are pointing at, at the end of the day, you know, they're pointing at head trauma as being like a mm. part of it. And I, I like that this... um this new one on the opioid crisis, I'm assuming it's going to be pointing to big pharma because that mm, tends yeah. to be the driver. It's like, why do we have such access to the opioid, you know, to opiates? And I mean, I think the way that most of us can conceptualize the, the breadth of the problem is that most of us have gone in for a root canal or I had sinus surgery earlier this year. And most of us have walked out of the doctor's office with a giant bottle of opiates, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I have a bunch in my, you know, in my bathroom right now, just from previous surgeries. And did anyone sit me down and say, you need to understand that these are completely addictive. You know, you're going to have to wean off them at the end of your surgery. No, no one did that. They just yeah. handed me, you know, and I think people may not understand too, that pretty much most painkillers are opiate derivatives. So it's not just mm. oxy. It's anything with codeine. It's like, it's a lot of medications. And for most of us, we'll take those medications and we'll wean off and we'll go along with our lives. But for anyone with a real predisposition for addiction, it's really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the anytime there's a product like that, that obviously if people are suffering from chronic pain and, and, and it might be necessary to, you know, use a medicine like that, it's understandable. But when the commodification of it too, yeah. like makes it even more sort of insidious and dangerous when, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are pushing doctors to prescribe it yeah. to patients who may otherwise be open to an alternative method of pain management that isn't as dangerous, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if they're incentivized to push this on people, it really can be dangerous. Yeah. And that is a system that we live in right now. I mean, there's so many broken parts of our healthcare system, but one of them is that pharmacists regularly, I mean, I used to work in an inpatient treatment facility and they, we would have, you know, um, pharmaceutical reps show up every Friday and wine and dine us. Mm. And wow. that, you know, that's, there's something weird about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, and, yeah. It's, and it's hard to know. The, the the level the more you look at whenever you start looking into the stories and every now and then for relevant it's fallen on Jesse I know you did a big piece on the opioid crisis uh, probably about a year yeah. ago now that was yeah and uh and that was some of the first really shocking information that I encountered it as I was looking over that piece because I, I think that the words they use can sound so scary and, and like like oh I would never I don't 
touch drugs. I don't do drugs yeah. until you realize, well, well, do you have, these are the things that are causing this are in your, or above your bathroom sink right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So. so I hope that this can, I hope that this can uh, and help with that. And this next story is actually yeah. kind of related to that, putting another human face on, on all of this. Um, number four this week, Demi Lovato opened up about how church has helped her own recovery. So uh, if you watch the Grammys, you know, Demi Lovato delivered a really powerful performance. The Grammys, she debuted her new song, Anyone, and it's very frank exploration of the singer's struggles with addiction before a visibly moved audience. Ahead of that performance, she actually sat down with Zane Lowe over at Apple Music to discuss her journey towards sobriety and the role that church has played in it. She explained, and this is a quote, I was not really a big church person even like a month ago. I shied away from church for many years. I didn't feel welcome. I was also questioning my sexuality. Lovato has uh, dated both men and women. She said, quote, I just found a place out here in L.A. that accepts me for who I am, no matter who I love, and there's no judgment, and that's what I needed. Uh, Demi Lovato said her manager, pop star kingmaker Scooter Braun, was actually the one who first encouraged her to check out a Bible study. Uh, she said that he was like, Hey, do you want to go to Bible study? And I was like, wait, aren't you Jewish? So he took me there and I just heard God clearer than I had heard him in a long time. Lovato was photographed attending a Sunday evening service with Braun and, uh, the Beavers, Justin and Haley last month. One of the few times she's been seen in public since her nearly fatal overdose in July of 2018, which launched what appears to have been a very meaningful process of healing culminating in the standing ovation she received at the Grammys. Near the beginning of that song, Lovato had to briefly stop after being overcome by emotion, but then she restarted from the top and delivered an almost flawless performance. She said, quote, I tried to seek God through other experiences, whether that's through other relationships or substances. And it's just like I had to realize that the God I'm seeking, the God that I love and the God that I want to be, my God is available 24-7, always at an arm's length and constantly with me. I need to focus on myself and my relationship with myself and my relationship with God. So that's, that's, <laughs> there's a lot there. There's a lot of threads we could chase down that one. I am real. That was a, a very kind of uh, uh, ho-hum Grammys. Her performance definitely stuck out and, uh, and opening up about this stuff when you're a s- celebrity at that level, that, that's gotta really suck. She's had a tough, it's yeah. never easy to be a famous young woman in that industry, but she's had an especially really difficult run at it. But 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 kudos to for her for the transparency to kind of open up about addiction. She's also been very open about things like body issues and kind of the 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 cost of fame. And now I think it's pretty you know encouraging to see her be able to have an honest conversation about faith and her relationship with the church and God, especially if it opens the door for other people who might be her fans to feel like they too can be open about some of their struggles. And and things they're dealing with, honestly, I, th- I think that's kind of, you know, th- th- there's obviously a double edged sword of kind of Instagram culture and celebrity culture. But I think if it if if it c- creates a situation where uh, people feel like it's safe to have difficult conversations, I think hopefully that ends up being a positive thing for people. Yeah, I think it's really cool that she is feeling like a church, a church that she found is a place where she's finding acceptance and. You know, because I, I just remember growing up, I 
felt like, well, if you were an alcoholic, you should probably fix that before you come to church, right? Like mm. that was sort of, yeah. and I think churches, I mean, in the last several decades have really embraced the need to like offer 12 step groups or, you know, all kinds of addiction support. Um, and it sounds like she found that kind of a church, which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and I love that approach too. Like, like you were saying, Kristen is like for churches to be a place where for healing to, to take place, not for a place just to celebrate the healed. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's huge. And we've, uh, oh, it's easy to make fun. And, and I've done it too, because there's sort of a cynical edge to the idea of like, the the celebrity church culture out there in LA that that the Biebers go to and, and Chris Pratt and these like these celebrity pastor influencers uh, many of whom uh, you got we have to say have been featured on this podcast and on relevant in the past and I understand the the jokes there and, and I can get cynical about it too but I do understand that it's not like Demi Lovato can just can just wander into any church in Los Angeles. She's got photographers following her everywhere. So there is some sort of there are some issues around that. And I do think that at their best, some of the people out there who who work with these churches are trying to find a uh, a way for these people to to have a, an experience with a, a faith community that can be safe for them. And uh, that can get messy really quickly. But it sounds like in this case, at least with Demi Lovato, it ended up being a very helpful thing for her. And and that's really cool. Yeah, I have mad respect for her. I thought her performance at the Grammys, I mean, it was just really emotional, really raw. She's she and as you said, she's always been really vulnerable and open. And I think she's paving a path for other people to talk about issues like eating disorders and addiction. I think she's really brave. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I do too. I, yeah, <laughs> I really can't. She was living a very interesting and very difficult life, and it's cool to see that it's uh, right now uh, taking a turn for the for the healthier, and, and hope it continues to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, number three this week. <laughs> this is a good story. A letter from Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Gandhi has been discovered. So uh, I, I loved writing about this. The Bonhoeffer Society has unearthed the letter that Bonhoeffer himself wrote to Indian activist and pacifist icon Mahatma Gandhi. The letter was presented by Clifford Green. In the letter, Bonhoeffer expresses his deep admiration for Gandhi and asks for permission to stay with him and study his movement. He wrote, from all I know about you and your work, after having studied your books and your movement for a few years, I feel we Western Christians should try to learn from you what realization of faith means, what a life devoted to political and racial peace can attain. Uh, This letter has been translated to English from the original German, I should say. Uh, Gandhi's own religious identification evolved throughout his life, though he declared himself to be a Hindu. He was also influenced by Christian, Islam, and Buddhist thought, along with writers like Tolstoy, Thoreau, and Ruskin. Gandhi championed religious pluralism throughout his life, much to his critics' consternation. Bonhoeffer's letter went on to say, I know, of course, you are not a baptized Christian, but the people whose faith Jesus praised mostly did not belong to the official church at that time either. Mm. In the letter, Bonhoeffer writes of how discouraged he's been by the lack of other examples of people who live up to the call of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, we are having great theologians in Germany. He cited uh, his friend and colleague, Karl Barth, in particular. And he said, they are teaching us great theological thoughts of the Reformation anew, but there is no one to show us the way towards a new Christian life in uncompromising accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. 
It is in this respect that I am looking to you for help. Bonhoeffer even notes that, quote, I went to the USA to find what I was looking for, but I did not find it. I do not want to accuse myself of having missed the one great occasion in my life to learn the meaning of Christian life, of real community, life of truth and love in reality. So it's not clear whether or not Gandhi ever responded to Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by Nazi Germany and eventually executed for conspiring against Hitler. Likewise, Gandhi himself was assassinated by a Hindu nationalist three years after Bonhoeffer's death. This is sort of the path of pacifists in our world. Bonhoeffer is far from the only Christian to ever be moved by Gandhi's nonviolent principles. Uh, Dr. King, of course, was a very uh, avowed fan of Gandhi. And uh, more recently, uh, Philip Yancey, a Christian author, has written a lot about his love for Gandhi. Uh, so that that was a, a letter that we stumbled across and such an interesting part of Gandhi's life that really throws a it's such an interesting and important part of Bonhoeffer's legacy that I don't think fits into a lot of people's narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Super, super interesting. My question here is for the Bonhoeffer society, to be honest with you, because I think they're doing great work and they're preserving the legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and highlighting the, you know, some of his important teachings. And, you know, I think the Bonhoeffer narrative has been, uh, you know, appropriated by different people in recent years. And I appreciate the work they're doing, but how did they just find this letter? Like, (laughs) like, how does it go? (laughs) Like, how do you have a society dedicated to the guy and now you're just like, hey, that file cabinet over there that says important letters. Maybe we crack that. Let's see what's in there. Oh, a profound moving letter to Gandhi. Oh, cool. I'm glad we finally did that. What's next on the checklist? Oh, it's to open his chest that says, please open the moment I die. You know, like, how did they just find the letter? <laughs> well, presumably it was down in India. Uh, maybe the Von Harper Society doesn't have a lot of, uh, doesn't have a, a lot of people on the ground in the Gandhi Museum where they still they're, they're like, listen, we, we, we took Bonhoeffer's, we, we decided to go ahead and get some of his suits that are in the Bonhoeffer Museum dry cleaned. And you will not believe what we found in the pocket of his jeans. It's a letter to Gandhi. <laughs> I just think that it's kind of bad that in his letter to Gandhi, you know, these two greats, he's still like dissing the American church. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went to the USA, nowhere to be, the Jesus thing, nowhere to be found, like Gandhi. in his death, he just fully did like. <laughs> he couldn't, couldn't resist. Couldn't resist totally. a little dig at American theology. No, it's fair, it's it. fair, it's fair. We get it, Bonhoeffer. <laughs> it's still happening. Guess you and Karl Barth can do your own thing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> we were, I, uh, I, I do think that uh, it, it's also kind of reassuring to know that as, as great as Gandhi was, as important as his legacy is, even he... Got some correspondence where he's like, oh, got to respond to that today and just never got around to it. That's kind of nice, too. It makes you feel a lot less bad for yeah, yeah, not returning yeah. to text yeah. on time. God, it doesn't do it sometimes, too. That, that's uh-huh. good to know, good to remember, and that's that's reassuring. And then after a while, you're like, now it's just weird if I respond. And then yeah, I have to g- address yeah, how it, long it, it's, it's It's like the, the Gandhi's assistant. He's like, so what? Uh, give me the, TL, the yeah, TLDR. What did Bonhoeffer want in this long letter he sent me? He's like, basically, uh, the West has no idea how to practice uh, the teachings of Jesus. And he's like, God, he's like, yeah, I totally knew that. So <laughs> yeah. what was his first clue? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the theologian living in Nazi Germany is telling me that the Westerners are having a trouble uh, practicing the message of Christ. Oh, shocking. Uh, tell him I'll write it back someday. Yeah. <laughs> just for now, just slide it in my jean pockets and make sure they get dry cleaned. Will you? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do wonder what that would look like. Like who would be, if you were, if there was going to be, if we, we have some, you know, modern theologians, people doing a lot of important work today that we thought, who would be the, the interfaith person that they would reach out to and say, I would love to come sit under you, learn from your teaching. I'm trying to think like. Maybe the Dalai Lama. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. The Lama probably. Gwyneth or, Paltrow, obviously. Yeah, g- yeah. G- g- I just want to g- stay g- in group for <laughs> the center yeah. of your teachings. And, 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 I think a lot of pastors pop- have been reaching out to her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sure. Gwyneth, is there any sort of oil cleanse that I can... <laughs> that, exactly. I just feel like we're missing something here. Talk to me about the yoni <laughs> eggs. <laughs> I think I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this gold crystal necklace that I paid nine thousand dollars uh-huh. for, I'm really not seeing the effects. So maybe you can help me out. Maybe you can help me. So I'm missing something. I feel like this is a new fan fiction we need to write. Like theologians reaching out to Gwyneth Paltrow with questions. <laughs> a dark corner of the internet. Yeah, <laughs> they all have to write under pseudonyms because if it gets out, they're reaching out to Gwyneth Paltrow. Their career's over, so they have to. Totally. I I mean, my friend, uh, not a theologian. Not a pastor. Uh, here's something I'd reach out to. Number two this week, James Corden has come clean about not actually driving on carpool karaoke. A scandal, <laughs> an American scandal. All right, as you, an international scandal, actually. Gordon's Speaking from the true UK. Crime, yeah. <laughs> as you may have seen recently, a video has been made. It's making the rounds, which shows a segment of the Late Late Show's carpool karaoke being filmed. It's shot by bystanders on their phone. The video shows Corden and Bieber in the back of a black SUV being towed by another vehicle. And the fact that James Corden isn't actually always driving while shooting this segment really outraged fans. So Corden decided to come clean on his show and offered some subtle commentary on outrage culture and apology culture. Here's what he said. I know this looks bad. (laughs) But I just want to say right now, that I always drive the car unless we're doing something where we think it might not be safe, like, like a you know, like a car, like a dance routine or a or a costume change, you know, or if I'm drunk, right? <laughs> but in the case of Justin Bieber, it was a safety issue where we thought it was best to tow the car, right? And frankly, I just kept getting lost in his eyes. Okay, <laughs> now. That current video that you just saw has over 13 million views. Which is more than some carpool karaoke, right? And it has caused uh, somewhat of a media frenzy. BuzzFeed said James Corden has been exposed. (laughs) AOL called it dream-shattering carpool karaoke revelations. And The Guardian wrote the headline, The Worst Lie Since Santa, (laughs) Why Carpool Karaoke is TV's Biggest Con. (laughs) Look, I'm just shocked I've done something that upset people more than cats. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I I love James Gordon. I love how self-deprecating he is. But I also do love, like, the, the, you know, like Tyler, you're saying, sort of the, the subtle sort of commentary it has on our tendency to be, you know, like a competition for outrage sometimes where it's like, OK, this is ridiculous. Who cares? Like, you know, there's actual injustices to be worried about. Mm-hmm. Let's not worry about whatever the latest sort of weird Twitter scandal is. 
I think that Cora, I, it's been interesting to watch the carpool karaoke thing and sort of the trajectory of Corden himself, who started out as this, he was completely unknown in the US when he got this show. And then he quickly became this, uh, this, this very beloved figure, largely because of early carpool karaoke videos. I think that really, uh, cemented a lot of his early goodwill that he had. And since then, there's been a lot of things that have happened to really put that goodwill to the test, including, like he said multiple times now, cats. He seems like he is extremely <laughs> not proud of it. <laughs> he, 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 musical theater fan. Immediately. <laughs> he, he needs to. Listen, I am the biggest Chris, musical theater fan you'll oh, ever yeah, meet. Oh, yeah, you're a fan. Yeah. And so tell even us about I, it. Yeah. and I don't agree with cancel culture unless it's directed at cats, in which case oh, really? I approve because that was a mess of a movie. Uh, I don't know what happened there. So help help me out because I I have never yeah, seen I mean, Cats. I don't know a lot it. about musical theater. I yeah. I'm intrigued by this one just because of the the so bad it's good narrative surrounding it. But in what way does this? Are you a fan of the actual musical, the original musical Cats? No, I think it's a terrible musical. Okay, so I don't understand no the popularity. Okay. Okay. No, there's no win. Although I, I will be honest, did I see it opening day? Yes, I did. <laughs> did I pretty much buy out the theater? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> so a huge group of us went to hate watch it, like with the intention uh-huh. yeah. to hate watch it. We were the only people in the theater. We were like yelling back at the screen and laughing. But no, it's a, I don't understand it. I don't know why it's popular. It is a, like 10 different cats introducing themselves and then a cat goes to heaven. <laughs> yeah. That's my yeah. understanding. Wow, sounds great. Uh, it, it, it makes no here's sense. A- it, it, it's, it's like I have I'm not like a musical theater person it, it, not that I have anything against it it's just you know not not like a field that I'm like super familiar with but like the the cats thing I was sort of fascinated about because the first criticism I heard was that uh, you know other than the, like the trailer being released and people like these look super super creepy was the plot there is no plot it is it is no. cat introductions you know <laughs> but the, the second thing I wanted to ask because I haven't seen it I've just seen the clips online and, and read some funny things about it but is the scale of the cats off like are the cats way too small they're small in some scenes and then they're big in some scenes like no one was minding the store in terms of like let's make sure this is consistent (laughs) the props department (laughs) was just out to just uh, run them up whatever you are i I think everyone was out to lunch and i well you know who was really out to lunch in this whole thing (laughs) is all of these actors managers like (laughs) did dame judy dench's manager (laughs) dame judy dench be like sure how did ian mccallum like where were their people? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jason Derulo makes sense because he doesn't have a lot going on. Sure. He, he, sure. You know, yeah. so, so he gets a call from the manager. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but, well, but the problem else, is it was the problem is one manager dropped the ball. It was like Taylor Swift manager or somebody like someone, I, you know, that has like some real clout and every other manager was like, well, Taylor Swift's in it. Whoever was first. But I have to say one thing about the carpool karaoke. Okay, I have yeah. never thought he was driving the whole time. No, thank you. Like this is news to people. You have to be a, you have to be a, a lunatic. Right. To watch those videos. There's no right. way. I can't even carry on a conversation in a car when I'm driving, let alone sing with Mariah Carey. That's, yeah. what, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. Also, I have to say, I one time, one time did an Instagram story while driving in rural Florida on a street with no other cars. And do you know how many people 
DM'd me mad that I Instagrammed while driving. So it's like, yeah. are we mad about safety? What are we? What are we yeah. mad about? I don't know. Everyone's just yeah. mad. Exactly. Yeah. What, yeah. Why do people feel that what James Corden being you know safely towed behind a car right. while you know behind the wheel of a car is any different? Like I have, I'm one of those people where if I'm lost for some, or if I'm like trying to figure out where I'm going, I have to turn the radio down. Like all yes. music goes off. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. can, like for some reason, I'm like, this will assist in my sense of direction and <laughs> my navigation. Well, you know, <laughs> the music's going down. No Every, everyone just, and people are like, are you listening to a GPS or are, are you getting directions from everyone? No, everyone just shut up and let me figure this out. Yes. I need silence. You know? <laughs> Plus, if I was a famous, I don't know how he's dancing. He's dancing with, you know, a K-pop band. I, I can't yes, even, I can't even, driving. Have, I can't even listen to NPR well, if I don't know what part of town I'm in, you know? Plus, totally. If I was a famous pop star, or when I become, when I'm finally recognized for my, for my Speak talent. Speak into the world. And somebody approaches mm-hmm. me and is like, hey, James Corden wants to drive you around while you're singing songs. I'm going to be like, do you know what kind of what kind of contract my lawyers would have to draw draw right? to feel yeah. safe about? Like, like that's a, Lady Gaga has her legs insured for like $3 billion uh-huh. a piece. There's no way <laughs> she's just going to get into a car with James Corden. Right? To we're going to let him drive Paul McCarthy into a wall? No, we're not. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the, stakes are, exactly. the stakes are too high. Way too high. Way too high. Okay. And number one this week, oh, Wes Anderson's new movie has revealed its stacked cast and release date. Uh, Jesse, I know your feelings on Wes Anderson. Kristen, where are you at on the Wes Anderson fandom? I'm pro. Very pro, pro. pro you're, you're on good, right, good team to West Anderson. Good to hear. All right, I think we all yeah. are here. All right. So after a brief foray into stop motion animation with the Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson is returning to live action filmmaking. We've got a few more details about this year's The French Dispatch. For example, the full title is apparently The French Dispatch of the Liberty Evening Sun. Not surprisingly, the movie has one of Anderson's signature stacked casts. Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leah Seydoux, and Francis McDormand get top billing along with Timish. Timothy Chalamet, Lina Kudry, Jeffrey Wright, Stephen Park, Bill Murray, and Owen Wilson. And if you can believe it, that's not all. According to IMDb, the movie will also have Saoirse Ronan, Elizabeth Moss, Willem Dafoe, Christoph Waltz, Jason Schwartzman, and Henry Winkler. Expect wow. them to be sprinkled throughout. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and this is what he does, right? He loves to get big names and drop them into little cameos in his movies. It's 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 the ultimate flex. It is. Um, the story will evidently act as sort of an anthology, dramatizing a series of fictional stories from a fictional American magazine in a fictional French town, which gives Anderson's trademark story within a story sort of a, a more uh, literal, I guess, than usual framework. Uh, we probably won't get too many more plot details until the movie comes out. He loves to keep his movies secret until they're released, but we will know more in July when the movie premieres, most likely at Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> the, the, I, I listen. I'm a Wes Anderson. I'm pro Wes Anderson. I'm a I'm a been a, been a big fan for uh, uh you know I'm a completist. Uh, I watch all of his movies. Um, I will say this: he is, in my opinion, getting dangerously close to self parody with films like The French Dispatch of the Liberty Evening Sun. <laughs> like it sounds like it sounds like somebody was like, hey. Do, you know, do, if you had to do a jokey title for a Wes Anderson movie, right. do I? And it's like, well, it, it, it'll be called something really long and pretentious, and it'll be like a kind of a dollhouse story set in a French town with a newspaper, oh, and sort care. of this alternate reality. <laughs> don't care. Again, I don't Shove care. I'm watching eyeballs. it. Yes. I'm watching it. It's better. It's better than most do of the movies care. that are put out. But I am. All I'm saying is, are, do you guys think I'm wrong here? Do you think it's getting it's approaching self parody at all, or or do you think I'm this is a bad take? 
I'm with Tyler that in that I just don't care. I'll just watch it. Hey, uh, take enough, my money. Mm-hmm. I'm there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If, yeah. You, if you got if you got he has a brand. Why 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 lean why lean out of it? That would be that that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. People know what Wesley yeah. is about. At this point, you you either know you either on board or you're not. And I'm and I'm very much on board. Royal Tenenbaums is is one of my. It was like a I was at the right age for that one, so it was like a formative mm-hmm. intro. It made oh, me yeah. feel really smart and like. Well, I yeah. watched the Royal Tenenbaum. <laughs> I was the right age for it, and uh, and then uh, oh. I've really I've I haven't disliked. Anything. Isle of Dogs didn't quite do it for me, but I haven't uh, disliked other than that really anything he's ever done. There was a few years ago an SNL uh, uh, sketch where it was like a horror movie by Wes yeah. Anderson, <laughs> but it had I think I think actually um, uh, Alec Baldwin did the voiceover just like in Wes Anderson movies, uh-huh. and it had like it looked like a, a Wes Anderson movie. And I was like, honestly, this could just be a Wes Anderson movie <laughs> if he made a slasher movie set at like a Nantucket village in some ambiguous era in the early '80s. This is probably that film, you know. But but, you but know, again, he, I, I'm, he, I'm here for it he has a consistent style obviously but he does Mm -hmm. you know reinvent stories and he has fresh stories fresh characters i mean i think you look at like woody allen where his his movies tend to like redo the same trope and almost the same storyline over and over again like i think wes keeps it i think he keeps it fresh yeah, his aesthetic yeah. is very yes. is the same, but the, the, but the same. themes the themes that he tackles are are pretty diverse and yeah, yeah, it's not the same character just rehashed in every movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's fair. Yeah, I, I I feel like and I feel like that ultimately it, the the style, the the music, kind of the the cinematic approach are all fun. But you really go to Wes Anderson movies because he has super interesting characters, and particularly his characters, who the ones that, you know, like Max Fisher or, or Dignan or the the kids from uh, what's the, the camp movie, the one where Moonrise. they're at Moonrise Kingdom, like who are sort of these outsiders um that are that do things their own way it's like that's where i feel like he really shines is highlighting these kind of outcasts and oddballs who end up being kind of unlikely heroes like that's kind of the fun of his movies to me Mm -hmm. okay that'll wrap it up for this week's it's the hardest the hardest when we come back john eldridge will join us You're listening to The Same Jesus. That's by Matt Redman off of his new album, Let There Be Wonder. Jesse, uh, you, tell us a little bit about this track that we're listening to here. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this album, Tyler. I'm obviously <clears throat> a big uh, Matt Redman fan. I mean, it's, it, his music's been so important to kind of the modern church. Uh, this one's actually produced by... Uh, the, the whole team behind this album is so good, man. Jacob Suter and Josh Silverberg. I actually went to college with Josh Silverberg. We live right down the hall from each other. Now he's a music producer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But, <clears throat> I mean... 
other writers and worship leaders that were featured on the album, Phil Wickham, Joel Houston, uh, Corey Voss, uh, Brandon Lake. So many people came together uh, to, to write and be a part of this album. And actually, we have a really, uh, a really cool quote here from Matt Redman that kind of talks about the heart behind the album. He said, Let There Be Wonder encapsulates a lot of what has been on my heart when it comes to worship in the last few years. Worship songs will never be able to paint the full picture of God's glory, but it's so important we aim high and give our best effort to conveying him as fully as we can. My hope and prayer for this record is that we find ourselves caught up in the life-giving worship of true of the true and living God. Let there be wonder. So yeah, Let There Be Wonder, the album is out now, but that's a that's a great track. It's called The Same Jesus. Awesome. Thanks, Jesse. John Eldridge is a counselor, Bible teacher. He's the president of Ransom Tart and the author of the new book, Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. In it, John describes ways to be more present, detached from technology, and become less stressed about getting things done. I can't relate to that. No interest. <laughs> I pride myself on lack of productivity. Not for me. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> but maybe this will be good for somebody listen, out there. Listen, I know, <laughs> I know I project a pretty cool laid back persona on this podcast, but I guarantee you uh, both of these two gentlemen on here know that uh, this was, this was right up my alley. This, uh, this combo. Yeah, I bet so. Did you, it's always kind of nice when, uh, when an interview sort of, aligns with your actual yeah. interests jesse because uh, yeah. you know we, you, you you and i work together so so we know the grind we're, we're familiar yep. with the with each everybody's got stresses we just happen to have the same ones uh so <laughs> so tell me tell me a little bit about your conversation with john well, so I wanted to talk to John, like the, the cool thing about John and we were talking about him uh, uh, the other day, Tyler, uh, offline yeah. is, um, you know, he I feel like he's written on a bunch of different topics. And I, and I talked to this. I talked to him off the record sort of about this, how he's written on so many different things. But I feel like one of the things he's maybe not known um, as much for as I think he kind of deserves credit is really this sort of countercultural uh, movement of uh, a way from like the idol of efficiency and productivity. Uh, you know, he's really yeah. kind of made it, it part of his mission to tell people the importance of kind of stopping to smell the roses and it, it, it creating margin in your life. But I wanted to ask how he got there. Like, how does someone, how, how does someone like make that? Okay. This is something I need to focus on. How is this my mission? And so this is, sure, you know, sure. how he described knowing it was time to make some serious changes in his life. Well, it started with symptoms like people would text me, friends would text saying, hey, you want to go you know, get a bite? And I would flinch. I'm like, people, just stop asking me stuff, you know? And, but I, I could deal with that. And then it was like I dreaded opening email in the morning because of everything that was going to be there. And I started noticing that. But, but where I really had to stop and go, wait, wait, was I couldn't be present to the people in my life. Like Stacy would be saying something to me in the kitchen in the morning. And I, I couldn't tell you, you know, five minutes later, I couldn't tell you what it was. And I didn't like that. I didn't like my inability to be present to the people that I love. 
So, you know, I, I feel like that's something sure. we've all sort of related to of not just not being present, but like, yeah, that thing of getting a text from a buddy to meet you for lunch. And you're like, are you crazy? How can I meet for lunch today? You know, like, <laughs> how dare you? I'm so, super busy. Why would you add another stressful thing? It's like, you know, maybe that is a pretty good wake up call that, OK, uh -huh. something needs to change. Uh, Tyler, I'm sure you can relate to that to some degree. I, I you know, the more the more he, as you were saying, some of these things, I started to realize yeah, maybe I got some stress in my life here and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, so he has kind of stumbled on the, I say stumbled on, he's sort of developed and discovered these practices that he's incorporated into his day-to-day -day life. And that's a lot of what this new book is about, uh, you know, getting your life back and these kind of small practices you can incorporate. And one of them is sort of this uh, tip that he learned from the Desert Fathers, you know, the, the, the kind of, I guess, Tyler, would it be accurate? to call the desert fathers like christian mystics yeah some of them i think that the christian mystic thing i get a little confused about the actual parameters of that but I, for sure there's a venn diagram there but but certainly like a m sort of monastic movement among mm -hmm. you know christians from you know hundreds of years ago that moved out to the desert to kind of find a new sort of enlightenment you know he started studying them and their practices and what could he incorporate from the desert fathers into his life that maybe would allow him to be more present kind of uh, emotionally but also spiritually and here is kind of what he discovered okay if i could give you one thing from all the practices that are in the book. One thing, um, I got this from the Desert Fathers, and the, the idea is benevolent detachment. Benevolent, because it's not, I'm, I'm not pissed, I'm not angry, I'm not checked out, I'm not cynical, right? It's kind, it's loving, but there is a time every day where you have to let it all go. You, you know, bedtime, maybe when you pull in the driveway in the evening, or you get off the metro, or like there has to be a point in your day where you practice this spiritual practice of the Desert Fathers of benevolent detachment. And it, it's really like, God, I can't carry this. This is breaking my heart. It's crushing me. I'm fried. I'm thinking about too much stuff as I walk in the door and try and be present to the people that I love, right? Okay, so we practice a simple practice of learning to release it. And, and it's very, very simple, but it's like riding a bike or playing an instrument. You kind of get in the groove of it. You, you, you kind of get to the place where you go, no, I can do that. I can do that. I can't do that for the rest of my life, but I can do it for 60 seconds. I can do it right now. What I love about that, it's, it's a very practical way to do something very profound. And that's to just stop sure. and, and, and allow yourself to be detached momentarily, not forever. You can't live in a state of detachment, but you can say, okay, you know what? I need a break from this type of stress, you know? Mm -hmm. That's something that John's really good at, has always been really good at, is uh, pitching you on these very aspirational ideas uh, that sound really good, but also really lofty, and then providing you with sort of the means to do it. I think that's something that a lot of people in in John's profession don't always do a good job at. And I really yeah. appreciate how realistic he makes some of these goals that end up changing your life. 
And, and, and along those lines is another tip that he kind of had. And it's a way to actively practice a degree of emotional self-awareness that really helps just your mental health state in general. And, uh, you know, I feel like emotional self-awareness is something that uh, is hard to put into practice because sometimes you just want to will yourself into feeling a certain way, right? Like sure. you want to say, well, I'm just not going to be stressed out. I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, but he, John actually had tips for recognizing how you're feeling and sort of, uh, you know, inviting God in to sort of uh, take control over difficult situations. Uh, here's how he explained it. Yes. Okay. So a couple things. First off, you have to become aware of what it is you're feeling. And, and again, the pace of life, the, you know, tsunami of information actually keeps you unaware. People ask you how you're doing and you don't know how to answer. So we just say, good, good, man. How about you? You know, but if you really tune in, you go, I don't know, I guess I'm anxious or I guess I'm angry or I guess, I'm, you know, so tune in to how you are doing and actually name it. Again, this is all kinds of stuff I didn't even write about, but it's, it's important for the conversation today. Uh, name it because there's research showing that simply naming it, you get off a phone call and you go, whoa, that was a really hostile phone call. That person was like super hostile to me. Just name it. It takes you 10 seconds and it actually reduces the emotional impact of that phone call. So be aware, name it. Um, but then this, the, the phrase I use is Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. And then I keep repeating it. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. And those things will start presenting themselves really quickly. Like, you know, the phone call that you just had or the email that you regret sending this morning or, or you know, the coming presentation that you got to do that. Um, it'll all be there. It'll start just parading. And so you give that, all right, I give the presentation to you. I give that person to you. I give that phone call. If you just work the phrase, I give everyone and everything to you. And by the way, this one minute pause idea became so healing for our community. Um, at 10 o'clock and two o'clock every day, monastery bells ring in our office and everybody pauses um, and recenters and lets it go. And then that became so helpful. We built an app and it's free. And so let me give it a shout out. It's called the one minute pause, um, one minute pause by ransomed heart. And the app will guide you through, you can literally do just a 60 second, or you can do a three minute or a five minute. There's even a 10, um, but it guides you through the simple thing of, I give everyone and everything to you super helpful. I, I, I love that because it not only like forces you to be aware of what's frustrating you in the moment. Like, man, that mm -hmm. email really did frustrate me, man. I need to release Chandler again to, every time I get off the phone with Chandler, I release everything <laughs> and everyone, including Chandler, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it, you know, it, it not only forces you to kind of verbally recognize the things that are, are causing you stress, but also that spiritual principle of surrendering, uh, you know, and saying, listen, some things are just outside of my control here. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I felt like these are really cool ideas that, uh, you know, can can really kind of help in the day to day as we're trying to just uh, be more present and, and live life in a way that, uh, you know, is more how we're called to live. And I asked John, like what his vision was for uh, for people when they read this book, what's their hope? Like, how would he say why would he tell people they need to take more time? They need to stop and smell the road. You know, he we talked mm-hmm. about, you know, he he will regularly in his day leave his office and go for a 10 minute walk outside. Like, you know, why would he what's his pitch to someone who is busy and stressed out and say i don't have time to pause during my day to say these prayers to reflect to detach to go for a walk what's the pitch and he actually got kind of emotional explaining what this can do once you start incorporating these practices um i'm i'm surprised that <clears throat> the question kind of chokes me up um i kind of have tears coming because i care and the the hope is this gang you get to be human again you get to be human again. Like God cares about your humanity. He really does. And, and this will restore your humanity. Like this, this will restore your joy, your love, all of that. You get your life back, man. Mm. Yeah. That's really I cool. That was a, that, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a lovely, really human moment. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful idea of like, hey, man, doing these things can kind of help restore some humanity that's stripped away in kind of the modern era of technology and anxiety and stress. And so anyway, it's a really great book. If people want to check it out, it's called Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. You can pre-order it. I think it comes out next week, uh, February 11th. So right around the corner, go ahead and pre-order it. Uh, It's definitely worth your time. Thanks a lot, Jesse. And thanks to thanks to John as well. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do our Indiana Pizza Club <laughs> investigation update at long last. <laughs> Stick with us. You're listening to Ober Love by Square Pusher. Okay, Jesse, I feel like we've we've teased this like twice now. We've we've been kicking this can down the road. That's not right. That's because right. Because we're scared. Because we're not scared. We're fearless journalists. But because yeah. we are committed to the truth, want to get the facts right. Didn't want to leave any stone unturned in our investigation into what's happening. But for the people who who maybe missed it, and, and it's been a while, could you just give us a brief? Uh, can you can yes. you kind of recap? Give us the Mad Men recap. Uh, okay. How we got to this point previously on 24. <laughs> so, so basically what happened is a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we did an editorial question of the week. And what we did is we asked people it was inspired by Kevin Max from DC talk, his call to Twitter followers to pitch and cast a CCM movie about the DC talk uh, uh, a story, like a biopic about DC talk. We decided, hey, why don't we ask our listeners to send us their ideas for their own CCM biopics? Like, who would they cast? What would the plot be? One of the tweets to one of those messages that we read had a passing reference to CCM icon Sandy Patty, who was arguably the biggest CCM star in the world, you know, or one of them in like the early 90s. Right. Yeah. So fair enough. Funny. You know, it's it's all good natured. All of a sudden in the mentions, in the replies comes a tweet from the Indiana Pizza Club, which upon further investigation is exactly what it sounds. It is a club devoted to pizza in the state of Indiana. 
This pizza club made the wild accusation that Sandy Patty somehow destroyed the economy of the town of Anderson, Indiana. <laughs> it was baffling to us. Tyler, you tweeted about it. A lot of people were chiming in. I did. The Indiana Pizza Club has somehow uh, tied the economic destruction of this Midwestern town, which seems to not actually be doing that bad, uh, to uh, something related to Sandy Patty. But also, uh, uh, they also tried to link her to, to something involving the JFK assassination. It, it was completely crazy. Tyler, you tweeted about it. Beth Moore chimed in. And she Beth did. Moore, uh, <laughs> she got a kick out of it because she's been accused of, of, of yeah. you know. No stranger, no stranger to accusations. <laughs> and she, so she tweeted she a piece that someone wrote about her that uh, semi-satirically tied her to the Houston Astros <laughs> cheating scandal. Uh, one of the pieces of evidence levied against Beth Moore was she's never explicitly said she wasn't involved in the Houston <laughs> oh, Astros cheating scandal. So not a denial. Yeah, not, not a, a denial. Not a denial. So, you know, so where our heads are spinning, what to do here? Well, uh, 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 a listener named Emily who live used to live in Anderson, Indiana, reached out to us and she said, listen, I think I can help with this mystery because not only is she a former resident of Anderson, Indiana, not only did she live above the mayor's son so she's got insight into the the, mm. the political scene she also <laughs> dated sandy patty's nephew and w- w- i you know we talked to her for a key while witness. a key witness but i want to play a portion of our conversation where essentially we had tyler you and i had proposed a theory to her that the only logical thing that makes sense is that the indiana pizza club has an axe to grind with sandy patty because the Indiana Pizza Club, according to our research, the rabbit hole we jump down and are still find ourselves tumbling down, uh, they are only about thin crust. Anderson is not far from Chicago, where it's a deep, du- deep dish city. Our theory that we proposed is that somehow Sandy Patty has it in for thin crust pizza. And this has rubbed the Indiana Pizza Club wrong, the wrong way uh, because they are anti deep dish. Here is a portion of this discussion. Hold on to your seats, everyone. <laughs> I have. I did reach out to the to the owner of the Indiana Pizza Club account a few days ago and asked the owner of this account for more information that they may have. Uh, crickets uh, in response. They they are not willing to back up their claims with any facts. That's a that's a red flag for me as a journalist. Uh, yeah. That's a toss some alarm bells. I'm Team Sandy on this one, Emily. I do have a question. I hope this is okay for me to ask. What kind okay. did, did did your relationship with Sandy Patty's nephew end on on decent terms? It did. Okay. How comfortable <laughs> would you be reaching out to this gentleman <laughs> and asking, "Hey, what kind of pizza did Sandy like?" <laughs> to your recollection, was she a deep dish person or was she a thin crust? Because I think that would help us get to the bottom of this. Well, you know, I haven't talked to him and over a year and a half. That's why so that I think if he got that, text, te- I think if but, he got that text out of the blue, he would understand exactly what this is about. <laughs> yeah. For the sake of the podcast, I'll send the text. Yes. Okay. All right. So, send the, so if you send the text, DM Tyler, and we're recording this on, on okay. Thursday afternoon and, and we're going to, this podcast will play on Friday. If we have an update, we will let people go. Now I am perusing the Indiana pizza club and, uh, the website right now. And your impulse is correct. Emily, I'm seeing almost entirely thin crust style pizzas here. I think Mm -hmm. this, the more I dig into this, the more I believe this has to go to some sort of thin crust, deep dish uh, controversy. 
That's that's my gut. That's what my gut is telling me as a journalist here. Occam's razor. It's probably the most simple solution, you know? Absolutely. This all makes sense now. Well, Emily, thank you for being willing to share not only your time with us, not only your your resources, your 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 knowledge with us, but also to help us pursue this story and, and see wherever it goes. We just want to know. Can, can I can, do you mind if I ask you one more question, Emily? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you were in Indiana, you were there for for 10 years. How involved were you mm-hmm. with local politics? And I'm going to segue that. Do you know the mayor? Because we need some economic <laughs> insights here. Um, the na- the mayor's son lived below me the last time I lived what? there. Whoa! Uh, Are you serious? But that's all. You rub shoulders with the elite, the Anderson, the Anderson elites. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens in a town of sixty thousand people. You can't help but know people who know people. Now, did the mayor's son seem to been out of shape about the economy, or is he like, listen, you know, I don't know if it's his father or mother who's the mayor, but he's like, you know, they're in charge. Everything's just fine here. Did did did, did he have any economic concerns? Um, I think he was preoccupied with some other things going on in his life. Uh, oh, we'll leave it at that. We can, great neighbor. We don't need uh, that. We'll, we'll, don't need we'll leave it at <laughs> that. Group at a time. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if the Indiana Pizza Club comes after him. Oh, okay, perfect. All right. Well, I think we are one close, one step closer to solving this mystery. Uh, so, so uh, Emily, but you did find employment once you got out of that broke town, and you are now a minister. Yes. Where, 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 where do you? Yeah. What, what city do you live in now? I'm a senior pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Oh, oh very, cool. very oh, cool. That's cool. What's the name of your church? Faith United Church of God. Faith United. Can, can I ask a, another question? Did you listen to yeah, the episode we did a couple of weeks ago, Corey Asbury? Yes, I tweeted that um, this is the center of probably where the Tulip dating site started. I've been on a lot of first <laughs> oh. dates to microbreweries. Um, you can- <laughs> Kalamazoo, where Corey lives, is just south of me. Oh, so so you can confirm our guess that people who go to the 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 dating site for reformed Calvinists probably take their first dates to breweries because that that's just what people do that believe that you know that have that theological that have those theological leanings because you are in this you are in the hub you you are in Grand Rapids. That's, yeah, this is the center of the Dutch Calvinists, and I am not one of them. <laughs> So this is a center of all of those things. Yep. Well, this has been uh, insightful. And uh, Emily, I'm convinced we're going to get to the bottom of this one. Yeah, I think with your help, Emily, I think. I think we can get, and we may not be done with your, with your resources and your talents just yet, but thanks for helping us kick down the door of this story. Listen, you've got my number. Any way I can be a resource, I am all about the investigation. All right. Well, if you find it, if you hear anything, let us know. Otherwise, we're going to be knocking down some doors on our end. <laughs> Perfect. Tyler, that was a fascinating discussion. And I know Emily. It was. I, I know that Emily said she would be following up with Sandy Patty's nephew, who she dated, mm-hmm. and she would try to find some more stuff out the local political scene. I'm 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 afraid to report to people. Emily has disappeared after conducting <laughs> this interview. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That's that is not true. That is not true. <laughs> Emily has reached out to me. Oh. Emily has jumped into my DMs. <laughs> she's, I thought she's she there. had disappeared. I thought she's she had boots disappeared. Boots on the ground. Boots on okay. the ground. She's she's done her due diligence. She's a born born gumshoe. 
uh, a, a PI uh, with, without what really this, this is a, this is a great investigative reporting. She has responded to her to our request that she reach out to the, her, her ex-boyfriend. Yes. The nephew of Sandy Patty. Yeah. A big ask. And obviously, yeah. you know, there, there's some there's some ties here, some journalistic ties that maybe kind of flirt with the line of what's considered acceptable. But we're but we're muckrakers. We don't care <laughs> yeah, about yeah, we, exactly. We, we, we just got to know. <laughs> we just want to know. And uh, she said, "Update: I texted my ex. He does not know Sandy's pizza preference. That's all we got, folks. He's lying. <laughs> he is lying. Run from this man, Emily." It's a good thing you broke up with him. I smell a liar a mile away. All right, so we'll we'll keep up with Emily. We'll we'll obviously we'll, we'll keep up with Emily. Yeah, we'll a number you know. of you and I and I, I I had a number of people reach out to me who are who have either lived in Anderson or or currently are living in, in the Anderson area. There does seem to be a general consensus that there's been some economic downturn there in the city. The ties to Sandy Patty remain at this point pretty nebulous. Uh, I, I can't draw a straight line between them. But if anybody has any more information, the DMs are open. You know where to find me. Uh, we would love to continue this investigation, and we will. We we will get the truth out of this. Uh, in our in our, uh, I believe, uh, hopefully, semi regular section, <laughs> Pattygate. <laughs> <laughs> What a show today. What a show. <laughs> and I think that will probably wrap it up this week. Kristen, this has been, the bar was obviously very high, as you noted. We have an excellent podcast going. I'm sure you didn't sleep at all last night. Um, but, <laughs> but, you, but, but nevertheless, you, you exceeded by leaps and bounds and elevated this podcast well beyond the, the usual uh mediocre tedious uh, uh bs that we usually talk about so thank you so much for making time <laughs> for us this is really fun thanks for having me it was really fun i i'm glad you can uh follow you on twitter at Kristen howerton right and you can yep. pre-order rage against the minivan learning the parent without perfection right now and you should it's, it's is that available for pre-order it uh, is Kristen? on amazon and everywhere Perfect. books are sold I, people need to get it yeah did it rage this against very the morning uh, and then, uh, hey, we also want to say thanks to John Eldridge for joining us. He's also got a new book, Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. Uh, you can pre-order that one now as well. And hey, while you're on our uh, Apple podcast page, subscribe to Relevant Daily. That's the top three stories every day, the intersection of faith and culture, Monday through Friday that we put out. Uh, if you want to stay abreast of our beat, that's where you can do it most immediately. And with that, we'll wrap it up. I'm Tyler Huckabee. Put you on the string. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm Kristen Howerton. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Relevant Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Check out other shows from the Relevant Podcast Network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. And while you're there, browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store. Make sure to subscribe to Relevant Magazine. Info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe. And the air and the time of the night to play your favorite song.
up and let me figure this out. I need silence. Relevant Podcast Network.